This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Welcome to The Every Lawyer, a Canadian Bar Association podcast. I'm your host, Marlies Silver-Sweeney. We've got a really exciting episode today. I get to interview the new Canadian Bar Association president, Ray Adlington, and ask him all about this upcoming year. Ray is a tax lawyer from Halifax. He's a partner at McKinnis Cooper, and he's been president of the CBA since September 1st. But more importantly than any of that, Ray is a husband and a father to two daughters. It's this role that's really shaping the changes Ray wants to see for the legal profession. His personal priority this year is championing inclusivity. Ray is launching his own podcast series next month called Conversations with the President. We'll get the inside scoop on that today, as well as his vision for the CBA. Thanks for being here with us today, Ray. Thank you very much for taking the time. Before I even ask you about your interest in diversity and inclusion, can you explain the difference between them for us? I always tend to lump the terms together, but they're not actually synonymous, and I assume they require different approaches. Do you mind unpacking them with some specific examples from the legal profession? Sure. So from my perspective, diversity is about statistics. It's about uh, numbers in terms of uh, how many women you have in an organization, how many members of the LGBTQ2S plus community you have in the organization, how many members of underrepresented uh, ethnocultural groups you have in an organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, Inclusivity for me is about behaviors. It's about uh, whether or not an individual is being made to feel welcome in their work environment. It's about uh, how people are adapting their thinking and their behaviors to fit the person that's in front of them rather than simply uh, examining them through the lens of their own experience. Um, so from my perspective, it's impossible to achieve true diversity without first reaching inclusivity, that inclusivity is the path to diversity. Interesting. Okay, so it's statistics versus actual behavioral changes in the profession. That's my perspective on the two subjects. So you've spoken openly about your own personal experience with depression. How do you think that will inform your work? in your role as CBA president? Well, it really is uh, a matter of exploring depression as one element of inclusive behaviors and understanding that the person who is in front of you that day may not be at their optimal performance level because something has happened to them. Uh, and, and this is just you know the day-to-day sort of life and sadnesses that people experience naturally Uh, Obviously, depression is a much more significant event uh, for individuals. And in 2016, the Law Society of Upper Canada's Mental Health Task Force actually found that legal professionals are at a higher risk than the general population of struggling with mental illness and addictions, and that often this is compounded by the culture of the profession itself. And, you know, you just alluded to this about inclusivity and behaviors that we can uh, demonstrate toward people who are struggling. How can the CBA help its members through this? 
I think that there are several things that the CBA can do. One is certainly uh, focus on removing the stigma that's associated with mental health disorders Okay. Uh, by talking openly about it, by understanding that mental health challenges do disproportionately affect lawyers. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are several theories in terms of why that is the case. I've certainly um, read about the nature of the personality that is attracted to law school. Uh, and that personality type being at higher risk for uh, mood and other depressive disorders. Uh, You sort of understand the stress associated with the profession. And ours is truly a lonely profession by nature. We are professional secret keepers, and that comes at a price upon the individual who is tasked with keeping those confidences and not being able to speak about their work activity on a day-to-day basis with their family members and uh, partners and other loved ones, uh, friends, even other lawyers, Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes. So I think one of the other things that the CBA can do is provide a shared community for lawyers. Uh, The CBA also has a wellness committee that uh, supports the work of lawyer assistance programs across the country, and their work in terms of education uh, and information and supporting those lawyer assistance programs is also incredibly valuable. Uh, And they're funded in part by Lawyers Financial, which is certainly uh, a much appreciated contribution from Lawyers Financial to support our wellness initiatives. Most important thing that helped me was that my wife uh, recognized the signs and um, convinced me that I needed to get help. And oftentimes it's that simple, is having somebody that cares enough about you as an individual to have that open conversation. Well, thanks. You've given us some really specific and concrete steps that either personally you can think about or also that the CBA is helping. I didn't realize that they helped fund the lawyers assistance programs. I actually reached out when I was an articling student to the lawyers assistant program here in Vancouver, and they really helped me through the transition of whether or not I even wanted to practice law and what that looked like. So I think it's a really valuable tool and resource. They can be very helpful in a variety of circumstances in terms of providing advice and helping you through difficult circumstances. So we've talked a bit about mental health, and I'm actually going to touch on female representation in the legal profession in a minute. And I understand you'll be exploring these issues in depth in your own podcasts. But what are your other goals and priorities for the Canadian Bar Association this year? So the other goals for the Canadian Bar Association this year are to advance our advocacy priorities of access to justice and solicitor-client privilege. Uh, we undertook a survey of our members earlier this year, and those were the two priorities that were selected by our members. So the board made a determination that we would be focusing on those two objectives over the course of the next year in our advocacy work. We will also be continuing to develop and deliver uh, professional development programming for all of our members, as well as focusing on developing an engaged and inclusive professional community for lawyers. And you have your own podcast series, Conversations with the President, where I understand you're going to be really exploring this, uh, your own personal goal of advancing inclusivity within the profession. What kind of topics are you going to cover? Our first episode was with a diversity and inclusion expert by the name of Rithu Basin, where we had a conversation about uh, privilege, authenticity, uh, bias, and uh, the neuroscience of uh, bias 
that was sort of the first conversation. Oh, how fascinating. Then we're going to be moving into stories from CBA members who have had experience uh, with bias and mm-hmm. with and we're going to be discussing their experiences because I think there's power in storytelling and in having people hear stories from other people so that they can identify those shared experiences and learn from the stories of others of how they've coped. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be speaking with uh, women. We're going to be speaking with uh, Indigenous lawyers, uh, lawyers of color, uh, lawyers from the sexual orientation and gender identity community, and lawyers with physical disabilities. And through sort of hearing those stories, we mm-hmm. will hopefully be able to develop some learnings that we can then uh, deploy. After that, we're going to be moving into speaking with uh, leaders of uh, law firms and law departments about their diversity and inclusion initiatives uh, to focus on both the successes that they've seen as well as the stresses that they've experienced Mm -hmm. through those initiatives. And the the hope there is to help law firms and legal departments in their execution of the diversity and inclusion initiatives. Many of these organizations have uh, diversity and inclusion initiatives underway but the trick is not in getting them going. The trick is in making sure that they are working effectively. And then finally, we're going to be closing by talking about some CBA-specific initiatives that we're undertaking over the course of the year. The Women Lawyers Forum is currently undertaking a compensation study okay. of uh, all uh, major law firms in Canada looking at partner compensation and the factors that are influencing any pay gap that might be identified between men and women partners. Well, it's really important. Absolutely. The professional development team within the CBA is uh, developing a conference, a one-day in-person conference in Toronto for the spring for uh, on leadership for lawyers of color. And that will be in the spring of 2019 that that uh, programming is delivered. And the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Task Force is underway with their work around implementing the CBA resolutions from 2016 Uh, mandating that we advance reconciliation with our Indigenous uh, communities across Canada. So their report is due January 31st. So we've got those underway right now, and we are working with our Equality Subcommittee in terms of developing other uh, concrete initiatives that can be deployed over the course of the next year and obviously beyond because this is not a fix-everything-in-one-year type challenge. No, but it sounds like you do have a lot on your agenda for this year. Yes, we do. I wanted to talk to you about the Harvard test for implicit biases. It's fascinating. Uh, Our listeners can access it through implicit.harvard.edu. And I had actually never heard of it before. I I only heard of it through you, through preparing for this interview. And I took it, or I should say I took them because it's a series of tests, to prep. I wanted to know how you first became interested in this. How did you find out about it and what struck you about it? So my first experience with the implicit association tests was in 2013 when the management team at my firm received cultural competency training uh, led by our professional development director, Lynn Eiding, and uh, she had brought in an outside resource to deliver the cultural competence training, uh, the woman I mentioned earlier, Rithu Basin, Mm -hmm. and she challenged us to take these implicit bias tests Uh, So I am never one to back down from a challenge. So (laughs) that evening I sat down and started. Uh, The first one I took was the gender association test with the sciences and humanities. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I was pleased with the results because it showed that I had no automatic preference between men and women in the two fields. Right. So I thought, okay, this is great. Uh, so I moved on. Em- emboldened by that early success, I uh, moved on to the skin tone uh, test. And-, and then things turned uh, because the- that test, uh, when I took it the first time, showed that I had a strong preference for light-skinned individuals. And I thought to myself, well, th- this is not good. Uh, so, you know, being a lawyer, I uh, did the automatic uh, approach and retook the test. <laughs> me too, me too. Uh, and, and I got the same outcome. And I thought, okay, this is not good. So then I said, well, maybe there's something wrong with the test. So I retook the gender test thinking, well, uh, maybe the, the test is broken or my keyboard is broken or something's just not working here. Mm-hmm. But I retook the gender test and uh, I got the same outcome, that I had no automatic preference between men and women in the fields of science and humanities. And at that point, I, I was sort of forced to admit that maybe the test might be valid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, I took the one between straight and, and gay people as it's framed on the IAT uh, website. And, and that also, fortunately, checked out that I had no strong preference for uh, between straight and gay people. But even now, I took the test last night as well, just to sort of prepare for our discussion today. Yeah. And, and five years later, I got basically the same results uh, when I took the same four tests. Huh. So, you know, this is very challenging because you have this worldview of yourself. And mine was that I'm a tolerant individual. And uh, it, it did shake me a bit that this was the outcome from these tests when I initially took them five years ago. Uh, and then I came to understand that I'm not alone as you sort of read the outcomes that uh, these implicit biases are held by everybody. Uh, the only question is what their implicit biases might be. It's not sort of unique. It's not a a bad reflection on your character. But I've come to learn that it's important information to know so that when you are encountering individuals from a different culture than your own, uh, you can be aware of your sort of implicit uh, views of those individuals and adjust your behavior and thinking consciously. Right. So that's what I was going to ask you. In the past five years since you initially took this test, how has it changed your behavior or changed how you approach your work or your colleagues? It's made me learn. I uh, then spoke with Rithu afterwards about these results and thought, okay, how can I improve? Um, I'm not good at failure, so I wanted to learn to do better. And the advice I received was start asking about differences because I was making the classic mistake of minimizing differences between me and other people by not focusing on them and not talking about them and trying to treat everybody the same regardless of their uh, cultural background, whether they were of a different gender than me, a different ethnocultural background or a different sexual orientation. I was not varying my treatment of those individuals, and uh, it, I was sort of told that I was minimizing cultural differences. And that was sort of the challenge that I had to overcome, and the way to do that was to speak with individuals who were not from the same cultural background as me about their experiences, and understanding their experiences and how they differed from my own uh, would help me overcome those implicit biases that I held uh, simply by having those positive interactions with other people. Well, it sounds like it ties back to what you're trying to 
accomplish in your own podcast series, which is having people tell their own stories that come from a diverse array of backgrounds. Yes, basically, I'm just continuing the homework that I began five years ago of learning about people and using those uh, stories and positive outcomes to advance my own personal development. And hopefully by sharing that experience, uh, start or continue the same journey for other people. And why is it so important to the legal profession to, first of all, understand where our implicit biases are, but also to advance uh, diversity and inclusion within the profession itself? Uh, I believe it's important that the legal profession in particular be focused upon this issue because we are called upon to serve Canadian society. And we can truly only serve Canadian society effectively in the legal profession if we ourselves reflect that Canadian society. Uh, because we have to understand the cultural backgrounds and uh, preferences of the individual clients with whom we're dealing. And unless we have that level of competency and that level of insight into how those under, other individuals are, are presenting and what they might be experiencing and their own views of the law, uh, we're not doing a full service for those clients. From a lawyer's perspective, I believe it's important to understand your implicit biases so that you can interrupt those biases and not make assumptions about the person's behavior um, who is in front of you. So to give you a couple of examples, uh, generally speaking, and obviously I'm, I'm not uh, trying to stereotype all women, but women are not, on average, as self-promoting as our men. So when you are meeting with the uh, female associate and you're talking about compensation and raises and bonuses, you are not likely to get the same level of self-promotion from that individual lawyer than you would from her male counterpart. Uh, that's sort of one example. Uh, another example is cultures that have higher deferential uh, to authority type influences or mannerisms who display sort of behaviors that show a higher deference to authority won't necessarily be as assertive in a meeting that's attended by a senior partner as would a member of a culture, ethnocultural group, that does not have the same deference to authority. Well, I wish you the best of luck in that because I think it's a really valid and commendable goal, and I hope that we get there in the profession. I explained in the introduction that you've cited your daughters as an impetus for focusing on inclusivity issues during your tenure as CBA president. Can you tell us a bit more about that and some of your other motivations? Absolutely. I have two daughters, and I made it clear when I sort of stood for election as vice president that the reason I was standing for election as vice president of the Canadian Bar Association is I wanted my daughter's experiences as they approached, entered, progressed through law school, and then eventually became lawyers, as they both aspire to do, to be as rewarding and fulfilling as mine has been. And uh, I've seen through my own experiences over the past two decades that that hasn't always been the case uh, for women lawyers. So that was an area that I wanted to focus on is ensuring that my daughters had the same type of experience that I did. And that's uh, compounded by the fact that one of my daughters is openly lesbian. 
So I'm a parent who is uh, very proud of my daughter and want her to have a positive experience as an openly lesbian young woman entering the legal profession. It sounds like you don't think we're there yet. Based upon what I've seen, I don't believe we're there yet. And I've seen enough evidence, statistical evidence, about uh, women in the practice of law and other underrepresented groups in the practice of law to understand we're not there. And let me give you one example. Uh, When I joined a regional law firm in 2001, at that time, there were 19 associate lawyers, three men and 16 women. As we stand here today, uh, there are six partners from among that group of 19, three men and three women. Yeah, it's pretty shocking statistics, isn't it? Yes, and that's just sort of my own experience within the law firm that I was in at the time in 2001. Uh, But I'm sure that those uh, statistics would bear out across a number of other organizations as well, where you would see Mm -hmm. lots of intake of uh, women and other underrepresented groups, but not retention. So that's the difference between the diversity and the inclusion that I was speaking about. And it's fascinating because if we just used your firm as an example and took it out of context, if we saw that there were from, you know, an incoming group, we saw there's three female, three male partners, that would, if we were just looking at diversity, like you say, and just base statistics, that would almost look good, right? We're, We're equal there. Exactly. But when you actually look at it historically, it's quite bad. Yes. And and of that group of six partners, uh, none of us are open members of the LGBTQ community. None of us are ethnic minorities. So you've spoken a little bit about how you plan to tackle already some of these systemic issues through your podcast series, through storytelling, through committees on gender diversity, through looking at compensation. Uh, Is there anything else that you plan to do to make the legal profession one where your daughters can fully thrive? Well, I'm going to be speaking and writing extensively about privilege as well, because privilege and power in this profession is far too concentrated among um, people that look like me. Uh, I began this journey about two years ago, and I went from a CBA member with no volunteer leadership experience to vice president of this organization in six months. And I became president 18 months after I began the journey of filling out the application. I I don't know that that happens for a deaf lawyer. And I don't know that that happens for a female Indigenous lawyer, the same way that it happened for me. So I want to be sort of talking about how power and privilege has an impact upon the legal profession in terms of role models and helping the next generation of lawyers aspire to those leadership positions. That's one of the reasons why we're looking at the leadership training program is to help young lawyers of color. And there is a similar program that the CBA does every two years for women lawyers, understand uh, leadership, leadership behaviors and prepare them for those positions so that they can succeed. So part of it is training the next generation and championing a more diverse leaders among them? Yes, and championing having legal organizations have their leadership teams reflect the legal profession as a whole. I recognize that that's something less than society as a whole, but we have to start somewhere. 
it, this leads me to my final question for you. Um, and that's there. I don't know if you've read it, but there was a really powerful article from the Globe and Mail last year, and it was written by Hadia Roderick. It was shared really widely in legal circles and, and beyond. And in it, she described her experience as a black lawyer on Bay Street, particularly the otherness and that sense of not belonging to this community. And you're a cisgender, heterosexual white man who ostensibly, at least on the outside, has not had this kind of firsthand lived experience. What can you add to this conversation on diversity? That's absolutely correct that uh, I have not had that shared experience. I certainly read the article and I found it very moving. And I found it moving in part because I believe for a period of time I was contributing to the problem. As I've alluded to, I was a leader in my firm. And uh, at that time, we were losing lawyers of color. We were losing uh, members of the LGBTQ community who were lawyers in our firm. And we were losing women lawyers. And in part, I think it's because of my own minimization behaviors. So I take full responsibility uh, for that. So in terms of what can I add to the conversation, I'm not sure yet. But the purpose of these conversations through the podcast series is to uh, continue to inform myself and continue to speak about the issues. What I can share, I believe, and add to the conversation is simply my own lived experience, being on the other side of it and having become informed of the challenges. Well, I can say that as a female lawyer or a non-practicing lawyer, but a female lawyer nonetheless, I feel fortunate to have you as an advocate and to have you at the head of the CBA this year. So I wish you the very best of luck with your lofty goals and your big agenda. Thank you very much. What a privilege it is to chat with Ray about his goals for the Canadian Bar Association this year. If you're interested in hearing more about him and his work, check out his website, cba.org dispatches. And I encourage you all to take the Harvard test for hidden biases yourself. I'd be really interested to hear what you thought of it and what you learned. Tweet to us at cba underscore news, or you can reach me at my handle, at marlisess. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. Ray's own podcast series, Conversations with the President, is coming out this fall. In the first episode, he'll interview Rithu Basen, an expert on diversity and inclusion. Thanks for listening.